Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'd like to take a minute to introduce you to the bariatric team. My name is Dr. Ivy Haskins, and I am an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. I am joined by my two colleagues, Dr. Tiffany Tanner, who is an associate professor of surgery and the residency program director, and Dr. Corey McBride, who is a professor of surgery and the section chief for MIS and bariatric surgery. Today, we will be discussing two articles regarding postoperative venous thromboembolism, VTE for short, and bariatric surgery patients. Before we get into the articles, we'd like to discuss why we chose this topic and provide some background regarding the incidence of VTE events in bariatric surgery patients. Thank you, Ivy. VTE is really a really important topic in bariatric surgery. Currently, the risk of DVT or PEs within 30 days of bariatric surgery is predicted to be somewhere between 0.2 and 2.2%. And while objectively these seem like small percentages or incidents, it's important that our listeners understand that with an estimated of 256,000 annual bariatric surgery cases performed in the United States, this means it's going to affect somewhere around 56,000 patients a year. Further, postoperative DVTs and PEs are a major driver of postop morbidity. The patients can have long-term leg swelling, skin changes, impairment of mobility, and these events have the potential to contribute to mortality for our bariatric surgery patients. Agreed, Corey. It's very important to underscore the importance of this topic, especially in the bariatric surgery patient population, because these patients are morbidly obese and oftentimes inherently have additional risk factors for postoperative VTE due to their associated comorbidities. The ideal prophylaxis for bariatric surgery patients has been debated for years without a definitive answers or recommendations, sadly. All versions of the CHESS guidelines, however, have stated that bariatric surgery patients are at least at moderate risk for postoperative VTE, with the recommendations for some form of chemical prophylaxis. ASMBS, which is the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgeons, has also recommended VTE prophylaxis in addition to early ambulation and the use of sequential compression devices or compression stockings. Great background information, Corey and Tiffany, that helps set the stage for this discussion. All right, so we have two journal articles to discuss. The first article is from Obesity Surgery, which is the official journal of IFSO, also known as the International Federation for Surgery of Obesity and Metabolic Diseases. Obesity Surgery is a bariatric surgery-specific journal with a high-performing impact factor. The title of the article is A Single-Center Comparison of Extended and Restricted Thromboprophylaxis with Low Molecular Weight Heparin After Metabolic Surgery. This article is going to be discussed and summarized by Tiffany. Thanks, Ivy. This article is a single-center retrospective cohort study that looked at the incidence of postoperative VTE and bleeding in bariatric surgery patients. The study was completed from 2014 through 2018. At this specific institution from 2014 to 2017, all patients who underwent bariatric surgery received VTE prophylaxis starting 12 hours before until two weeks postoperatively with deltaparin, also known as Fragmin which is a low molecular weight heparin. In 2018, the institution changed its practices and gave patients only deltaparin 
during their hospital stay starting postoperatively, and only patients who were identified as high risk by the Caprini scoring algorithm received post-op extended prophylaxis. Postoperative VTE was captured only if the patient was only if it was clinically apparent, meaning that patients were not routinely screened for postoperative VTE with either CT scans of the chest or lower extremity duplex studies. And postoperative bleeding was diagnosed in the presence of clinical signs with confirmation by imaging or at the time of reoperation. If a patient had clinical signs of bleeding only, they were not captured as experiencing a bleed. Interestingly, the authors found no differences in the rate of postoperative VTE or bleeding and concluded that not using extended VTE prophylaxis was safe and effective. They did, however, note in a subset analysis of their patients that patients who are on chronic anticoagulation were more likely to bleed regardless of the perioperative VTE regimen. That is certainly what we've seen at our center. Patients that are on chronic anticoagulation preoperatively for a condition such as atrial fibrillation or a valve, or if they have a history of DVT and PE, even when we follow all of the recommendations by the national societies for either holding their anticoagulation pre-op or holding it with a bridge, do seem to have a higher rate of bleeding, either by clinical signs and symptoms, drop in their hemoglobin and hematocrit, or actually bleeding that requires a procedure or intervention in the perioperative period. And unfortunately, we've had some very significant complications, some that occur during the hospital stay and some that occur when we resume their anticoagulation in the uh, days three to five, for example. So our routine practice is actually to continue them on low molecular weight heparin until two weeks after surgery and then restart their either warfarin or their novel oral anticoagulant because it is much easier to stop a low molecular weight heparin in case of an adverse event than it is to reverse uh, warfarin. And some of the novel, anti or novel oral anticoagulants don't have highly effective reversal agents at this time. Yeah, you bring up some great points, Corey. I also think it's important for our readers to remember that it's not just about the time that the patient's in the hospital, but really within the first 30 days is when they're most likely to bleed. Exactly. All right, Tiffany, can you discuss the Caprini score a little bit? Absolutely, Ivy. The Caprini score is a calculator that determines the risk of VTE based off of a few different factors. Age, so patients that are 40 to 60 get one point, 61 to 72 get two points. You get assigned a points for gender, particularly patients who are on oral contraceptives also receive a point based off of the type of surgery. So patients who are undergo a 45-minute or longer laparoscopic surgery were to, could receive two points. Recent events, such as major surgery within the past month, get one point. They also look at venous diseases or clotting disorders. So patients who have factor V Leiden, a history of DVT or PE in their past, or a family history of VTE. Also, patients who have lupus anticoagulant all receive three points. Patients who have current central venous axis get two points, and varicose veins or swelling patients have one point assigned to them. We also look at patients' mobility, so patients who are confined to their bed for over 72 hours receive two points, and others, other present and past medical history also factors in. So patients who have an elevated BMI of greater than 25 get one point as well or present or previous malignancies get another two points. So patients who score between three to four are considered moderate risk, which most of our patients are considered moderate risk based off their BMI and major surgery and their age alone. 
without any other additional risk factors. High risk is considered five to nine, and a score of greater than nine is the highest risk. And this confers an up to 10% risk of VTE within one month of surgery. Thanks for that summary, Tiffany. It's definitely hard to keep that straight, but I agree our patients are definitely at least moderate risk. So in addition to the Caprini score, that was a great summary of the article. Um, The Caprini score is definitely the most widely used, but I find it to be a bit cumbersome, which may be a bit of foreshadowing into Corey's article that she is going to discuss. But back to yours for a minute. Just a few comments. I appreciate the quality improvement aspect of this article. Like we do here, it's good to review and revise your program's guidelines based on patient outcomes. However, I do find the conclusions made by the authors interesting, as I think that one could argue that based on their results, extended prophylaxis isn't causing any harm. So why not do it for all bariatric surgery patients, especially since they are at least of moderate risk surgery patients? I think first, when you consider any article and how it's going to potentially impact your practice, you should really consider, well, you know, is this patient population that they're studying and does this study really apply to me? So I think one of the first things that I looked at when I was reading this article is that this study used deltaparin, um, which is a low molecular weight heparin. However, it's not the most widely used low molecular weight heparin. In general, most programs use either Lovenox for their low molecular weight heparin or subcutaneous heparin for their perioperative anticoagulation. So it's it's hard to really try to figure out, is this really relatable to what we do here in our institution? Um, The other thing that I think warrants discussion is that their rate of postoperative VTE was very low. Uh, Two patients total from 2014 to 2017 had a VTE postoperatively, and no one in their group in 2018 had any blood clots. So the two patients who experienced a VTE in the first cohort of patients had developed early postoperative complications, and therefore they fell off the institution's typical protocol, including early mobilization. Also, beginning in 2017, any patient whom there was a suspicion for bleeding also received TXA or transensemic acid. I very much appreciate that BTE rate was low for this institution, but their article does not mention the total number of patients that fell off the typical postoperative protocol during the study time period, which I think is important to consider when interpreting these results. Also, given what we know about TXA and the potential for clinically significant BTE events following its administration, I don't think that this institution's protocol of empiric administration of TXA in the setting of concern for postoperative bleeding can be widely adopted by bariatric surgery centers. I agree completely with you, Tiffany. I think the applicability of this study may be a bit limited, especially, um, you know, at our institution. It's also really important to consider the strengths and weaknesses of a study, which you've done, the study design when you interpret the results, as well as, again, the applicability. So if you could summarize, what are the important takeaway points from this study? Big picture conclusions would be that extended prophylaxis does not increase the risk of postoperative bleeding, but may help reduce the risk of postoperative VTE, either in low to moderate risk patients. I think understanding this institution protocol is really important as perhaps early ambulation, SCDs, or other interventions can help reduce the risk of VTE may also influence the results of the low incidence of VTE. All right, moving right along. The second article is from SWORD, which stands for the Surgery for Obesity and Related Diseases, which is the official journal of ASMBS and is our highest impact factor journal for bariatric surgery. The title of the article is Risk Factors for Postoperative, excuse me, Risk Factors for Post-Discharge Venous Thromboembolism, 
among bariatric surgery patients and the evolving approach to extended thromboprophylaxis with anoxaparin. This article is going to be discussed and summarized by Corey. Thanks. I think this, this, this article is an extension a little bit of the article that Tiffany just discussed in terms of selective use of postoperative extended VT prophylaxis. This was a systemic review looking at the majority of the articles in the English um, literature that have discussed VTE and VTE risk factors from 2000 to 2022, from 20, sorry, mm-hmm. goodness, from 2000 to 2020. And I think it's an important article because they really did look at 20 years of data, um, which really reflects an evolution in our thinking about VTE. At first, they identified 43 articles, but they ended up narrowing it down. Um, They refined them really trying to look at those articles that were trying to look at VTE risk factors and assessment and people who used the data that they'd found to modify how they were caring for patients. Then they found two other articles specifically looking at bariatric specific risk calculators. So when we look at the first objective of the study, which was the 15 articles looking at VTE risk factors, they found that in all of the studies, weight, male gender, history of prior VTE were the most important risk factors for postoperative VTE in the first 30 days. And as we mentioned in discussing the last article, we're not just talking about the hospital stay. Our hospital stays have gotten shorter and shorter in caring for the bariatric patient. The majority of our patients go home on day one. So we have to continue to track our patients and really consider the appropriate care for the first 30 days after surgery. But in addition um, to weight, male gender, and history of VTE, Obstructive sleep apnea and COPD were found to be significant risk factors in five of the 11 articles that considered and tracked it. Congestive heart failure was a risk factor in all three of the articles that looked for it. Now, not all of the studies looked at all of the factors. For example, um, only nine articles considered substance abuse as a possible contributing factor. But of the nine articles that considered substance abuse, six of them found them significant as a risk factor for VTE. And only four of them looked at functional status, meaning was the patient mobile without the use of an assistive device such as a cane or or walker. But if they looked at it, all four of them found it statistically significant as a contributor to VTE. Surgical approach also impacted the VTE risk with open incision as the surgical approach being a uh, risk factor for VTE. However, it's unclear if this is a primary cause or if it's because open surgery is associated with a longer time on the operating room table, increased time to ambulation postoperatively, increased hospital stay, or the fact that many open surgeons don't give a pre-op dose of a thrombo uh, or a chemoprophylaxis and only use sequential compression device, or if it's a combination of any or all of these factors. Now, Dr. Tanner gave us a really excellent um, summary of the Caprini score. Um, But what's important to realize about the Caprini score is it is risk stratifying all surgical patients based on 20 factors into low, medium, and high. 
Now, we're very fortunate at Nebraska Medicine, our clinical affiliate with UNMC, that it's built into our electronic medical record. So we don't have to manually calculate it, but it's not specific to our bariatric uh, surgery patients. Um, It's well known, it's well validated, but it's not bariatric specific. There are now two bariatric specific VTE risk calculators that are available. And this article went uh, um, into some depth about these two um, calculators and their um, background and what the kinds of details they can give us. The first was developed by Dr. Finks of the Michigan Bariatric Surgery Collaborative. They used their data on patients who had postoperative VTE and the associated risk factors. The nice thing about this calculator is it can tell you the 30-day risk of a VTE, and they recommend whether the patient should have prophylactic versus therapeutic low molecular weight heparin preoperatively, intraoperatively, or postoperatively. But one of the downsides to this calculator is it makes no recommendation on the duration of the extended prophylaxis. That is up to the surgeon to make a clinical uh, judgment. The second calculator was developed by Dr. Ali Arminian at the Cleveland Clinic using the ACS NISQIP database. It uses 10 variables such as age, gender, BMI, presence or absence of congestive heart failure, paraplegia, but also whether or not the patient had a reoperation, dyspnea at rest, a non-gastric band surgery, an operation greater than three hours, um, or a hospital stay longer than three days. The study that validated this tool found that two and a half percent of the bariatric surgery patients within the Cleveland Clinic system had a greater than 1% risk of VTE in the first 30 days. So they've uh, proposed a two-tiered system. If the patient has a risk of VTE in the first 30 days of 0.4%, the patient should get a two weeks of extended VTE prophylaxis. On the other hand, if they have a higher risk of or greater than 1% risk of VTE in the first 30 days, they should get four weeks of extended VTE prophylaxis. Just so our listeners know, both the Michigan Collaborative Tool and the Cleveland Clinic Tool are available as apps for their phone so they can be used in the clinic easily to risk stratify their patients. The crux of this article really is that there is There are scoring systems that are much better for our bariatric patients than the Caprini score. They have a greater utility in predicting postoperative VTE, in guiding um, whether or not you need extended prophylaxis. And in the case of the Cleveland Clinic scoring tool, the duration that that extended prophylaxis should be given. Unfortunately, um, this article that looks at 20 years of data still... um, while it makes suggestions, it is not definitive and there is nothing uh, prospect or randomized about it. It does, however, acknowledge that anoxaparin or Lovenox is superior to unfractionated heparin in this setting. Wow, Corey, thanks so much for that summary. I feel like you just took that article, which took 20 years of data and really condensed it into a great kind of summary and guidance for our readers. I agree. I actually really enjoyed this article, and I definitely think I'm going to refer to it often, and we're, we're going to add it uh, to our journal club uh, for all our trainees. 
you know, uh, we've discussed it as a faculty and we have started to incorporate the Cleveland Clinic Risk Calculator into our workflow. For years, I have used this app and so have my partners on a real ad hoc basis when evaluating the patients that our, our guts told us were uh, high risk. And we would use um, extended post-operative VTE therapy based on the calculator. But after reading this article, I realized that we probably missed some people. And, and we realized that we really should score every patient to make sure we're not missing anyone. So our, our current plan now is really to score every patient at their history and physical appointment. Um, and, and when you score them at their H&P appointment, you're not going to get all of the points in the calculator. You're not going to know if you reoperated on them. You're not going to know how long your operation took. But if even without those points, they already score that you should be giving them extended thromboprophylaxis, you can get your pharmacies, financial counselors, or your social workers working on the prior authorization to facilitate discharge. And then you can always rescore them if they didn't qualify, or those two data points will change the duration of your therapy. I think that's a great approach. Um, we definitely used that when I was training for fellowship. We had several early VTE events when I started, and we started using the Cleveland Clinic Risk Calculator. And you know, fortunately, knock on wood, we didn't have any additional VTE events, and we didn't have any bleeding events either. So I definitely think it's a great tool to help kind of guide our practice. For the listener, what Tiffany and Corey have done in summarizing these studies is identify the basic methodology of the study. They've identified the main conclusions, they've interpreted the results with the understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of the study, and they've identified practice-changing opportunities. Definitely what you want to be able to do when reading any journal article, and certainly throughout your time as a practicing surgeon. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this discussion about post-operative VTE following bariatric surgery. To summarize, bariatric surgery patients are at a moderate to high risk for post-operative VTE. Intervention should be taken to help reduce this risk. Extended chemical VTE prophylaxis may be one of these interventions in a select number of patients. And because extended chemical VTE prophylaxis is not without risk, the use of a bariatric-specific risk calculator should be considered. Until next time, this is the BTA Bariatric Surgery Team. Stay safe, stay healthy, and go Huskers. Until next time, dominate the day.